Have you seen that movie with Brad Pitt where he's managing a baseball team that isn't doing so well? It's where he hires a grad who has a new perspective on how to turn the team around and win. The strategy which took them to the big leagues was where they used data and statistical analysis to find undervalued players and to bring them on the team, and so began the winning streak. That movie was Moneyball, and yes, that was based on a true story. So, what does this have to do with the legal industry? The running theme is analytics and data, and in this episode, we will be looking at whether data-driven insights can have as much of an impact in the legal industry as they have had in the world of baseball. This is your host, Hamza Zaveri, and today we'll be joined by Richard Maybe, co-founder and CEO of contract management platform Juro, and we'll also be joined by Edward Chan, a finance partner at Linklater's and founder of the Nakoda platform. Let's get into it. Richard and Ed, welcome to the Linkubator podcast. So before we begin, um, would you like to quickly introduce yourselves and give us a bit of information about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Richard, so I'm one of the co-founders of Juro. So uh, I actually trained at Freshfields. That was my initial introduction to the law. So I qualified into their corporate department um, back in 2012, I think it was. Um, And for the last five years, I've spent my time working in legal technology, first with a business called LegalZoom, which is a US-based legal technology company, and then uh, with Juro, which I co-founded around three and a half years ago. Uh, and I'm Ed. I'm a partner in our banking group here at Linklaters. Um, so um, my normal day job is um, as uh, what other partners do um, uh, in terms of client work. Uh, but as um, a bit of extracurricular activity, um, we have been, as a firm, have been spending quite a lot of time uh, looking at various bits of legal technology. Uh, and I happen to have founded a, a unit within Linklater's called Nakoda, which is our sort of internal startup. Um, and uh, looking forward to the conversation with, uh, with both yourselves. Sounds great. So we have an entrepreneur and an intrapreneur. Richard, could you tell us a bit more about Juro and what kind of technologies it, it works with and especially anything analytics related as well? Yeah, so we're a contract collaboration platform. So we've really got two aims. The first aim is to help in-house legal teams take the bottlenecks out of contract process. It's all about helping people agree contracts in a very robust way, in a very fast way. Um, And the second thing we do is we help businesses gain unrivaled visibility into their contracts and also the data that their contracts contain. Um, so th- this, is, this is broadly what we do and the value we deliver. I think from, from the analytics side, I, I think this is all about that second value proposition of how do we give lots of visibility into contracts. And so when we started out, we thought, well, you know, what, what data is there that goes around contracts? And we put it in two buckets. One was the uh, workflow data. So we sometimes think about this as the lifecycle data. So it might be things like, How many contracts are we processing per month? Uh, How long is it taking us to get a contract from being generated to being approved internally? How long is it taking our internal signatories to sign? So things like that, which are actually relatively straightforward to kind of get hold of if you have the right tooling. 
And then the second piece was this much harder problem, which is that contracts, and I think we're going to talk about this, but contracts contain a lot of what we think of as unstructured data. So just long paragraphs of legal text and these little nuggets of gold embedded within them. So maybe it's the date the contract expires, maybe it's a clause like a jurisdiction clause or a warranty clause. And in order to get them, um, certainly when I was a trainee, we had to read all the contracts. Um, and now there are lots of technologies out there like natural language processing, like machine learning, like name identity recognition. And they help us get that information out of those contracts and then make it useful. And I think we're going to talk in a moment about how we can do that. Yeah, sure. That's a good segue into just taking a step back and, and looking at it from a big picture point of view. I think it would be good to get both of your perspectives on this as well. Would you mind um, just going into what analytics is in and of itself as a concept? Yeah, sh sh shall I have a go? I suppose if we take a step back and we say, um, what is the problem that we currently face as a profession? Um, and um, one of the main issues we face is actually we have a lot of uh, agreements in writing. So in this firm, we have well over 100 million um, documents in our document management system. That's not to say that we necessarily are able to find everything uh, when we need to. Uh, um, and th this is no different from any other law firm or any other big organization. So there is a huge, huge uh, mountain um, of uh, paper. Um, and um, as Richard says, it's quite difficult to work out where the gold nuggets are. Um, and why is this a problem? This is a problem because actually when you look at how organizations use other types of data, so for example, um, numerical data is a different uh, ballgame altogether because with the advent of you know, Excel and spreadsheet and all sorts of other technologies, um, people playing with numbers have always had means of manipulating or, or, or doing things with, with numbers the way that those of us who work with words just don't. And, and because actually um, for the legal profession, a lot of it is quite linguistically based, um, the challenge is how do we have that in any ordered sort of format? Um, Richard correctly says that it's, a, it's become a rite of passage, and Hamza, I'm sure you've seen this as well, is a rite of passage for every junior lawyer and people listening in, um, that um, you have to spend the early part of your career just sifting through manually huge amounts of paper. Uh, and this cannot be the best use of anyone's time. Um, and, and so I think all the different technological solutions are seeking to attack this problem in their different ways. Uh, analytics, actually, I suppose it, what it boils down to is the ability to spot those gold nuggets very, very quickly, um, faster than if I was sat in a room with a box of a thousand documents uh, turning page by page. And, and I think it's that shortcut, and shortcut might make it seem trivial, but that is how you get to decision points a lot faster than otherwise you would do. And that is the value add that clients would appreciate. Okay, that's really interesting. So some people may have heard of Moneyball, which uses data analytics or statistical data analysis to select baseball players and to predict their value as well. But how can analytics be applied to law? You know, what are the uses and applications of analytics in the legal industry? So, so Moneyball is a really interesting example because the, the, I remember I've seen the film and uh, I think there's a book as well, but um, I think it, it makes a fundamental point that people are wrong about everything. 
Uh, and this is actually pr proven out by behavioral economics. It's proved out in looking at things like uncertainty and managerial decision-making. What we know is that human beings' decision-making processes are deeply flawed. And so if you look at the way in which decisions tend to get made in uh, certainly our clients who are not exclusively but predominantly tech businesses, there's this continual narrative of how, how do you become data-driven and w what data are we going to use to make a decision. And the, the sort of flow is between having a hypothesis, which is kind of a theory. So in Moneyball's case, it might be, you know, I think this player, Joe Bloggs, is going to be great because, you know, I, I, I saw him in the last match and he was pretty good. Well, that's a classic, a classic kind of human bias where you're looking at this recency effect and you're thinking, well, he was good last time, he's probably good the next time. There's another analogy like that in fund management where fund managers on average destroy value and people talk about these star fund managers who typically have just statistically someone is going to have six years of a good run just purely based on probability and human beings are quick to associate causality and say well because they've been really good for the last six years they're going to be really good for the next six years and actually we see repeatedly this isn't the case so 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 how, how do we get out of that in, intuition and that decision making process in the law well, a lot of it actually is about having good hypotheses. So in the case of, let's say, deciding whether to take a, a case to court or whether to proceed in litigation, there's a sort of a marrying of the data that's in the, the, the Linklater's partner's head. There's also um, the, the judgment that they've development, developed through experience over time. But the, the question becomes, is there also data that could be thrown in? I mean, could you look statistically at how likely you would be to succeed based on certain inputs? who the judge might be, um, statistically whether people succeed or fail. So a lot of it is about, I think, um, checking the decisions that we have. So often, you know, you still need human beings who are highly smart and experienced to make the decisions. But if you can check that with data, the theory is that you can get to a better outcome and you can be more right more of the time. And I suppose just thinking about it, um, organizations all strive to be data driven and you scratch through the surface as to, well, what actually do you mean by being data-driven? And then you hear some spiel around, uh, well, our decisions are all sort of governed by data, which is fine. But I think um, the, the, what, what becomes interesting is the point at which you recognize that there are limits to that particular approach. Um, so for example, um, uh, some clients have expressed to us that, look, um, negotiating contracts or particular type of contracts there are inefficiencies and bottlenecks throughout the process. Um, if there was data um, that would show, look, we always fight for this particular clause, um, we never win in 99% of cases. If we just accept that reality and don't even fight for it, well, perhaps the whole process becomes uh, a lot uh, uh, smoother. So that's a sort of micro decision that probably data is useful in trying to solve for. But you then easily get into things where human judgment becomes more important. So, so this, this comes back to the fact that actually um, the, the, the repetitive pattern that the data shows doesn't inform the decision as to whether it's a good idea to pursue a particular piece of litigation or to pursue a particular acquisition, um, given the legal risks involved. I think that's where it becomes more difficult. And um, what I think sometimes people confuse is or rather they hope for is that, well, you know, there's some obvious answer in the data that makes my very difficult human decision difficult. Unfortunately, that human decision is going to continue to be difficult. And 
in some ways becomes more clouded by the fact that sometimes you have to overrule um, the patterns that you're seeing uh, presented by the data that you have. Okay, that's really interesting. So, Ed, you touched on yeah. contractual, I'd say, analytics yeah, yeah, yeah. where you try to extract insights from the data that is in a whole host of contracts to help you decide whether to undergo an acquisition, for example. And Richard, you also touched on um, how analytics can be used in litigation to try to predict which cases might be won or which judges might be the best to decide a certain case. And there's also um, another aspect of it, which is organizational analytics, where law firms might look into evaluating their own data as an organization and extracting insights from that so that they can run their businesses more efficiently as well. And, and I guess if, if you take the law firm example, because um, and I suppose it comes back to the baseball type example, because you can measure players with so many metrics in the same way that you can measure lawyers and their performance with so many metrics. Um, but you would like to think that organizationally, we are not so bound by the metrics. I mean, the metrics are what they are to some degree. Um, and you know, all of us have sort of our charge out, sort of uh, our chargeables or hours and so forth. Um, but nevertheless, there needs to be um, a rule of reason and a sort of a judgmental override. You know, the reason you didn't charge this number of hours in this particular week was because you were doing something else that's particularly valuable on the know-how front. So, so, so there is that element of judgment that um, needs to creep in. Because what, what, what I sometimes worry about is um, the, the perception of this being a very scientific approach it leads people to the very lazy assumption that human judgment becomes less important. And, and I think that that is a very dangerous path to, to, to sort of to go. And I, I really like the phrase you used, which was um, using data to help you decide. Yeah. I think this is a really compelling phrase because I, I think, as Edward says, I think sometimes in the engineering mindset, there's this over-reliance on, on data. I think for lawyers, one really important thing is to know how to handle data. Um, so it's one thing to go and you know, find five data points and think, well, that's, that's a pattern. It's going upwards. Therefore, let's make a decision. But actually, data analysis is quite complex. And uh, I think, you know, um, for the, the, the law students and the prospective trainees listening, I think one of the most valuable things you can do is just get really good familiarity with Microsoft Excel. Um, it's on most people's desktops. Um, as lawyers, we're world experts in Microsoft Word. <laughs> we end up using all these kind of macros and we become just really good at it. But actually, um, you know, we often think about kind of tooling like Nakoda and Juro, which has, you know, quite complex analytics capabilities. You can actually start much more basic than that. Um, so Excel will allow you to have structured data really of any kind. It will allow you to build graphs and to see trends. And so just getting that training and familiarity, I think, can get you into this mindset of what it means to handle numbers and make decisions based on them. So following from that, how do you think lawyers making data-driven decisions will change the legal industry? I suppose um, just in terms of the rigor the data brings with it, you can sort of picture uh, a scene uh, in uh, you know, the, uh, the boardroom or the executive committee of a particular client and uh, a decision is being made that has a huge ramification for that particular uh, corporate. Um, and you go around the table and the finance director has a lot of numerical data at their fingertips. You know, the head of sales, the head of strategy, we have all sorts of data. And then you approach the most senior in-house lawyer, the general counsel, 
And the general counsel most likely will say, uh, well, based on my gut feel, um, this is why I'm sort of coming up with a particular proposition. And so it would always seem that other professions looking at uh, lawyers will think that actually um, the lawyers are not on top of the detailed data. Um, and, 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 and sort of people begin to question, well, actually, do you then have to do a big due diligence exercise to get to the point which probably confirms the gut feel of the general counsel? So, so, I, I, so I suppose this is a way of saying that maybe the data will validate what was the, the feel of what the senior lawyer thinks. Um, uh, and, and, and it is useful to have it. Um, but fundamentally, I think um, we are in a world where um, we have to accept the reality that we can no longer go just on someone's gut feel in terms of making big decisions. I think from my side, I mean, the, the in-house case is really interesting. That's, that's what I spend most of my time doing and, and, and working with those teams. Um, I think in those cases, it's often the case that uh, there simply isn't enough time to do the analysis. So you ask for a snap decision in the boardroom, and that's where this, this judgment and experience can be really helpful. I, I think one trend, though, that we see, and I think this will really help in-house legal teams specifically, is this shift from thinking about legal as purely an advisory function. So you've got in-house lawyers, they're doing some of the advice, some is outsourced. So an idea of thinking about not just the, the practice of law, but the business of law. And this is where new functions have emerged. So things like legal operations is a kind of it's a hot, hot topic at the moment. It's really saying something quite simple, which is, can you run a legal department like any other department in the business? And it could be, you know, by, as a comparable, the finance department are endlessly looking at metrics. If you look at a sales team, they'll, they'll all know their numbers off by heart. Um, and for a legal team, you can actually find some numerical value as well as the, the more qualitative stuff. So I think in those boardroom discussions where the general counsel can really point to some data points which is showing the value of the business, showing the value of process improvements, I think that, that can be really, really helpful. So Edward, you founded Nakoda and Richard, you founded Juro. Both of these platforms, they employ AI. So just for clarity's sake, what is the difference between AI and analytics? So I suppose um, AI is one of these um, terms that can mean all sorts of things to different people. And, um, and, and I think people get very scared because actually it sounds complicated. The truth be told, um, the use of it in legal practice, and you know, Richard will have his views, um, is that it's still uh, very experimental. Um, it's not as widely used as it can be. And the technology is actually fairly simple, if I may dare say so. So the best way to think, uh, to think about it is the main technology being used is effectively pattern recognition. Um, you've got a thousand contracts to review, and um, are there patterns um, in those thousand contracts that, um, that a particular algorithm can spot a bit better or faster than a human can? I think that's the gist of what a lot of AI platforms are currently using. One of the main problems with um, some of these technologies is that actually the accuracy levels are not yet at a level that um, it is safe to run a, um, the algorithm alone. Um, and in terms of um, what um, these systems are capable of, they're getting better. But fundamentally, their ability to understand, well, they don't understand linguistic patterns. They can pick out um, what the linguistic pattern is. But the interpretation and the actual um, yeah, sort of understanding of it still remains very much in the human domain. 
Um, and I think I would say um, that fundamentally, there just isn't enough clean structured data to run all these algorithms on. So the practical experience is um, uh, there's a lot of um, uh, effort that needs to be done in order to clean up sort of old documents in Microsoft Word or PDF or whatever format um, into um, data points on which you can sensibly run sort of um, AI algorithms. And I don't think as a profession we're anywhere close to that just yet. Yeah, so for, for, from our side, I mean, we, we tend to look at two types of data, structured and unstructured. And you know, as, as Ed said, the predictive accuracy of AI is not yet at 100%. So actually, AI-generated AI data is quite a lot worse than structured data. Structured data, you have pretty good uh, feeling that if, if it's properly structured, it could be at 100% of accuracy. And so for us, I mean, one of, one of our enemies is Microsoft Word, um, because with every new contract you create, you're creating something that is necessarily unstructured. Now, you can then, after the fact, so post-signature, go and use AI-based technologies to pull that data back out. But one of the things that we said as a business was, this seems crazy. Why create a problem for yourself and then try and solve it with something that isn't 100% accurate? So we actually rebuilt a documentation format in Juro, um, which is structured by default. So that means that contracts that are created and collaborated on and redlined within our tool kind of sit in browser, look just like a contract, but actually there's something underpinning them. And what's underpinning them is a structured data model. And that tries to take us from a point of this is just a pile of text to we have highly structured data points within this agreement. We can record, for example, if you're striking through half a paragraph, that's recorded as a data point, knowing that the next time you create something, well, you know that that has been negotiated previously. So I think, that, I mean, all of this is on the kind of the bleeding edge of innovation. And it's, it's still, you know, the, the state of the industry is not yet at a point where everything is kind of done. But this big focus on, you know, not fixating so much on the AI side, but actually just thinking much more simply, how can I get data? Because that to me is the fundamental difference in AI and analytics is analytics is all around the interpretation of data. So most AI and legal is all around getting you know, data points out of contracts. Once you've got them, you've got to do something with them. And so that, that's where interpretation comes. I think on, on certain kind of branches of these AI technologies, things like predictive drafting in contracts is quite an interesting area. There's a few kind of tools out there doing that. That actually is, is going a little bit further than just data extraction, and that's, that's still very nascent. Um, so at, at, um, at minimum, you need human beings to be verifying the predictions that the machines are making. And at worst, you might think, well, actually, this is just not, not yet ready to be helpful. I think the summary is that AI is used for extracting or looking at patterns within data flows, whereas analytics is about interpreting it. I, I think I think if, if you had to if you had to divide it, that probably is, is quite a good way of looking at it. Um, and I, and I think it's probably useful just to remind ourselves as to what the uh, contextual background is, because we've got a hundred million Microsoft Word documents somewhere. Um, and that mountain is growing day by day every time someone upstairs uh, sort of completes another document in Microsoft Word. Everyone in the industry uh, amongst clients and other law firms will be doing the same. So the paper mountain is growing. And therefore, um, what needs to happen just systemically, there are two things that need to happen. The first is you need to reorder 
um, that paper mountain. So this is basically going into that paper mountain with whatever extractive technology, um, which may be pattern recognition based, etc., to make sense of it. And that's difficult. Um, but you need to break that that um, that cycle at some point. Um, and I think what Rich is doing with Juro, what we're doing with Dakota, is actually why don't you just start? Do yourself a favor um, when you produce that contract. I know you're used to Microsoft Word. We can make it look like Microsoft Word, but actually do it in a way where there's an underlying data model behind it that captures all the points at the point of creation. And and, and I think at, at the moment that is not going. That doesn't feel as if it's um, moving the dial. But you can sort of see that that has to be how this paper sort of mountain problem is solved over time. Might take a generation to do it, but you've got to start somewhere. Sure. And for some of our listeners. Can you summarize what you mean by structured data and unstructured data? Uh, let me have a go. Um, so I think I'll go back to my Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel analogy. So a structured data point would be the contents of a cell in Microsoft Excel. We know that that is a defined data point. We can also track within Excel, for example, that it is a number or it is a date or it is something else or it is plain text. Uh, and then unstructured data would be you have a Microsoft Word document. It's filled with kind of boilerplate and somewhere somewhere within the, the paragraphs are very, very important points. So unstructured and structured, you can think about it in the sort of the Word Excel analogy. I think specifically within, within contracts, um, if you look at, um, let's say we take the, the 100 million link latest documents that are in storage somewhere, um, and we were to pull out structured information. That information might be things like renewal dates. It might be things like um, you know key clauses that those documents contain. But the starting point is it's unstructured. So to give you a very specific example, um, one of the things we do at Juro is to extract data points around when contracts renew, so when they're going to expire. And we do that because if you have a contract that's a million pounds a year and you miss the renewal date, you have to pay another million for something you didn't want. And we have clients who've kind of experienced that before coming onto the platform. The problem with that is that most of the time, contracts, commercial agreements don't say this contract expires on the 21st of February 2020. They say this contract will terminate, will terminate 180 days from the date hereof, or you must give notice 30 days prior to the effective date, or the, the anniversary of the effective date, or whatever it may be. So all of a sudden, you've got this sort of mess where actually in Excel, you'd really want data points. When did the contract start? When does it renew? When do you have to give notice? And this is where I think AI can be super helpful because you can actually contextually interpret that natural language to get you to that, to that format, which you know, in our case, it's a, it's a JSON, which is a sort of bit of code, but doesn't have to be, could be an Excel, is getting that information out. Um, and that's, that's the fundamental and, and most important thing we think is that needs to change with contracts. So Ed, can you tell us a bit more about the Linklater's AI tool Nakoda and, and how that came about and also whether that employs any analytics elements within it? So, so I think um, for Nakoda, where we started off was um, we effectively have a platform um, where it started off as a contract creation platform um, in order to be able to create contracts uh, more effectively. Um, than our other sort of documents sort of generating um, uh, sort of technologies. So that's where you start. But then, of course, um, because you're capturing uh, all these relevant data points and you're building in a data model, 
underlying um, the particular document that you're putting onto the platform. It then leads you into, well, you can actually do the analytics because actually all the bits of data will be there. Uh, and um, it's early days yet, but you can sort of begin to see um, a lot of promise in it because um, you can run um, bits of AI over the top. Um, you can begin to interpret. So, so you know, Richard mentioned the example of expiry dates. Um, and you can pick up expiry dates. You can uh, begin to build logic around um, things like um, if it says 180 days after the start date, um, therefore the end date must be whatever that real date is. So, so there are bits of simple, simple bits of logic that you can begin to build into the overall model. And what this gives you is a lot of powerful analytics that you can sort of pull out in whatever shape or format. Um, and, and it pretty much is uh, boils down to at the time, what exactly you want to pull from the data that you have available. And it could be in endless permutations. It's really interesting. So if we're talking about analytics yeah. and AI and how much of an impact yeah. they can have in the legal industry, as we mentioned before, something we can't underestimate is the importance of good structured data. And we also mentioned some challenges around that in that there's there's a mountain of unstructured data in the legal industry. Can you go a bit more into the challenges? So let me give you an example. Um, so there's over the last few years, there's been various attempts to standardize certain very commoditizable documents. So the, the classic one that's always used is the non-disclosure agreement. The non-disclosure agreements have pretty minor variations. They normally have a couple of clauses saying you can get injunctive relief and you know, here are the parties and you've got to keep this stuff confidential and this is the stuff you've got to keep confidential. But there is no real market standard for that document. And so uh, over the last few years, there's been multiple projects which have basically got lawyers together in a room like this and they've tried to get them to agree what the market standard is. And the problem that invariably occurs is the lawyers can't agree. And so there's, there's this sort of subjective debate. And the reason why they can't agree is actually there's information asymmetry. So let's say you've got 10 lawyers in a room and each of them has seen 500 NDAs. Well, they haven't seen the other people's NDAs and they haven't seen all of the NDAs that have ever been created. But if you think about a different approach to that problem, you could say, well, all the NDAs are somewhere. So if, if that could be open sourced, if people were able to share that data in one place and you were to run pattern recognition and analytics on it, you could probably find a sort of the, the average type position and you could produce something standard. And lo and behold, you could get something which in 90% of cases could be just agreed without having to have any legal spend or any debate. So, so those problems are mostly down to the fact that there is no centralized repository for contract data, for example. And of course, of course there isn't because of the confidentiality concerns, et cetera. But I, I, do, I do find among our clients, there's this great drive now to try and standardize some of these processes where you, know, you find yourself, we have clients sort of signing 200, 300 NDAs a month and sort of investing lawyers' time on challenges which could just be solved by knowing actually what standards should be. It's, um, it's, it's almost a game theoretical thing. It's like a prisoner's dilemma. You can either sort of collude um, and just stop wasting your time on NDAs or you actually lock, lock horns you know, 300 times a month and cost the business millions of pounds a year. So I think one problem is just 
the data isn't in one place. The secondary problem is that data itself is generally unstructured anyway. So I think we're, we're a long way off being in a world where you can just sort of hit a button and two parties are going to get what they need. It's got to be much more incremental than that. And I think, you know, as, as Ed said, it's all about trying to get to as structured a, a point as you can so you can actually make use of that data. And, and NDAs is a, is a funny one because everyone thinks that that is the logical place to start. And on further investigation, um, it probably is one of the worst places to start because, um, yeah, on, on the one hand, it looks simple. How difficult can this be? And you then end up with the sort of the gridlock uh, that Richard has, has, has mentioned. I mean, in our experience, um, where there is further traction is if you've got more industry standard documents. So, um, yeah, the, 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 our, our sort of current product on the Nakoda platform is, is the create. So those are, is the sort of documentation where you would say there's a powerful trade body that is pushing for derivatives documentation to be in a particular form. And of course, there is variation in how the final um, negotiated documents will end up. But fundamentally, there is enough common structure in there in order um, to be able to to sort of to put a, a document uh, on a platform in a way that is sensible. And other trade bodies, the Loan Markets Association, will be looking at something similar uh, in relation to syndicated lending. Uh, and, and you can sort of see that there are incremental moves in that direction. Sure, I found that, um, you know, the concept about moving towards a standardised process of, of creating contracts really crucial in helping to, to structure it. Um, and I think both of your platforms are about creating structured data from the outset. You know, I think that's really good in, in helping to tackle the fragmentation and the varying degrees of quality and quantity of legal data. So it seems that analytics and the structuring of good data are going to play a key part in the future of the legal industry. Um, how can aspiring lawyers prepare themselves and get involved in both analytics and helping to create structured data and you know following from that what skills will they need so um so if i can start uh, on that so skills this is an ongoing debate um in this firm as it is in uh all firms in the sector um and there's a lot of debate about what we expect future lawyers to have uh, I, i'm sort of in the camp of thinking that um uh, lawyers should just well lawyers should continue to focus on their core legal skills because the practical experience of um, the lawyers that we have working on Nakoda, for example, the skill that they really bring to it are just the pure legal skills, just knowing how the document fits together, um, understanding how the drafting works, um, because those core skills allow you uh, better to be able to disassemble um, the document and to reassemble it in some kind of structured format. So, um, and, and, and I know sort of it, it's, it's, um, it, it's a difficult one because on, on the other hand, you still have to get people over uh, you know, the phobia of using uh, Microsoft Excel. You have to get people through the phobia of talking to the developers uh, and understanding a, a bit more about sort of coding. But in all of this, what they mustn't lose sight of is um, they're being hired to be lawyers and the core legal skills remain sort of paramount, of paramount importance.
I, I would agree with Ed. I think a lot of this comes down to something which is you know, quite basic. It's nothing to do with coding. It's nothing to do with AI. It's numerical reasoning. So I think you know, if you've been fortunate to have a degree in economics or mathematics or something like that, then yeah, that's, that's quite helpful once you've done your conversion and you spend 95% of your time training to be a great lawyer. That other 5% of time for, well, actually, you know, am I able to work with Excel? Am I able to handle data? Do I understand what it means to think about data? So I'm very big on getting a great awareness of Excel. Um, I think having basic awareness of code is, is helpful, but let's, let's not kid ourselves that actually all of a sudden all documents are going to be built in code and, and you know, Linklater's lawyers are just going to be doing coding all day. I think, I think we're a long way off that. Now to the final question that we ask of all our speakers. Um, can you tell us the name of a book that changed your perspective in a big way and that would be beneficial for our listeners and it doesn't have to be law related? So shall I kick off? Um, so the book I, I have in mind is um, a book called The Innovator's Dilemma by a Harvard Business School professor called Clayton Christensen. And what it does is it tells um, the story of how disruption uh, happens um, when innovative technologies appear uh, and explains how successful companies in a particular field uh, will sometimes fail because they keep doing what they perceive to be the right thing, uh, but are not nimble enough uh, to abandon some of their existing processes uh, and to adopt um, you know, the, the ways of potential disruptors. And I think for us, uh, Linklaters, we are an incumbent uh, law firm, and we like to think of ourselves as a successful leading law firm. Um, it's a sort of uh, salutary tale of just ensuring that we can never be uh, we, we need to be on our guard as to what sort of potential um, disruptive, uh, disruptor sort of firms uh, there might be just around the horizon. So, so, so that I think is, is, is quite an important um, takeaway for those of us who sort of do this type of thing. Yeah, so for my side, so I'm going to plug one of our own books at Juro, um, not because I wrote it, but um, we actually had third party uh, contributors from the legal industry, and it's called Legal Operations, How to Do It and Why It Matters. Uh, the reason it changed, changed my perspective is I, I previously thought lawyers just give advice, and all of a sudden this new world was open to me, um, and we had people like the chief legal officer of Pearson, the head of legal at Monzo, um, suddenly talking about you know, what does it mean to run a legal department, an in-house legal team like a business. Um, and there's plenty of stuff in there around data, but lots of other things. And I, I found it, the process of editing it was a, a great way of getting empathy with clients. So coming into a law firm, I think, having a deep understanding of not just what are the legal challenges that your clients have, but also what does their day-to-day -day look like? What are really the things that are keeping them up at night? Um, so it could be a useful read. It's free. Uh, so a day, I didn't get any commission from this, um, but uh, you can download it on our website at jury.com. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. We have added a link to Juro's free ebook on legal operations in the description, so do check that out as it offers some really useful insights. Also, don't forget to like and subscribe to Linkubator, and see you back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>